0: And welcome to this podcast, one, one of the number of um, that have been created for the Eating Disorders Awareness Week. Um, so recent studies do indicate that up to 16 percent of the UK population screen positive for an eating disorder. And this is a significant increase over the last 10 years, and particularly in the wake of the re- recent COVID pandemic. While these illnesses are often perceived as only affecting young women, in reality, eating disorders present across all genders, ages and ethnic groups, and in people of all shapes and sizes. In fact, only 6% of people with an eating disorder are underweight. There are a specific number of of classifications um, for such eating disorders, ranging from anorexia nervosa, bulimia and binge eating disorders, but... There are many um, common factors related to them and this is something we want to explore today. It's also important to remember that there's a hundredfold disparity between the estimated number of people with an eating disorder and those who are in receipt of specialist treatment. And while this includes many who try to access support who, for example, because of their BMI or because of lack of funding for services are unable to get it, it also may relate to the associated stigma and associated shame and guilt which stops people reaching out for support. It's also recognised that society, including carers and healthcare professionals, through lack of awareness or understanding of these conditions, often perceive that individuals with eating disorders are making a lifestyle choice and may even be actively thwarting any attempts to help them get better. And it's these latter aspects that we'd like to focus on today in discussion with some incredible people who continue to live with these conditions and to learn about their experiences and insights. My name is Penny and I'm a consultant gastroenterologist working in London. I've worked as a clinician for over 20 years with patients with severe anorexia nervosa in an acute trust in association with my eating disorder colleagues. And more recently had the opportunity of working as one of the clinical leads with the Healthy London Partnership and NHSE in the um, Community Adult Eating Disorder Transformation Programme. One particular pleasure and education for me over this time has been the privilege of working with some amazing lived experience practitioners, some of which have joined me today for this discussion for which I'm hugely grateful. Any such conversations relating to these sensitive issues not only take great courage, but may also risk triggering some difficult emotions. And this may also include our listeners. So if you encounter any such challenging feelings, please do contact your GP 111 or friends and family in any support network network which you may have around you. The charity BEAT also provides support and you can access this via their website. So I'd like to move on now um, to ask um, our um fellow discussants to introduce themselves and a little bit of their background before we move on to the um, the conversation in general. Let's start with Sophie. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Thanks, Penny. Um, so my name is Sophie. Um, I am a lived experience practitioner with, um, I've been diagnosed with binge eating disorder um, and I'm uh, working with the Healthy London partnership on the Community Adult Eating Disorder programme. My diagnosis is fairly recent and I'm currently undertaking a group CBT um, recovery programme with the London Eating Disorder service.
0: Brilliant. Thanks very much, Sophie. That's great. Gemma.
2: Thanks, Penny. Um, I'm Gemma and I'm also a lived experience practitioner with the Adult Eating Disorders Programme at the Healthy London Partnership.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Gemma. That's great. Annie.
3: Thanks. Um, Yeah. Hi, I'm Annie. I was diagnosed with binge eating disorder in February 2020 and I am a lived experience practitioner um, on the Adult Eating Disorders Programme. Uh, with Healthy London Partnerships.
0: Thank you. That's that's wonderful. Thank you. So um, once again, I'm really, really grateful for, for all of you for making it this afternoon. Um, and uh, let's see how we go. So I'm I'm just going to just kick off with quite a general question. I think I'm going to, I'll start with, with Sophie again, but I just wondered, how did you become aware that you had an eating disorder and how did it make you feel?
1: Oh, thanks, Penny. Um, so the way in which I became aware that I I had a diagnosable eating disorder is that I um, I went to my GP to talk about I suppose two things one being my very low mood and the other being the struggle that I was having to um, to lose weight um, and she well I, <laughs> it was quite an emotional session and I I ended up sort of explaining to her that I, I felt a huge amount of um, anxiety and distress around the way that I was eating and the fact that I couldn't seem to control what I was eating. Um, and she actually she just suggested to me that I look into having some CBT with um, IAPT, so with the local the, the talking therapy um, provider in, in my local area. Um, And so I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll see if that, that, that helps because I, I really, I really felt that I needed some help and I really didn't know where to turn and I didn't feel as though something like Weight Watchers or whatever would, would, would be the right thing because of the amount of distress I felt around it. So, um, so I self referred to IAPT and they assessed me and it was, it was them actually that said, we think you should go to the eating disorder service. So they referred me there. Uh, The Eating Disorder Service assessed me and said, well, you potentially could have binge eating disorder, but because your mood is so low, and I was in such a I was in a a real state where I couldn't imagine a future. I couldn't imagine wanting to live or wanting to or believing that I could get better. Um, So they said, We think that you should go and do some CBT with IAPT to to work on your mood and then come back to the eating disorder service if it's still a problem. So I got referred back to IAPT and I did the, um, I did some CBT and my mood did improve, and then I went back to eating disorder service and finally got diagnosed with a binge eating disorder. Um, and I think that's how I felt about it. Um, I felt hope for the first time in a very long time. I felt in some ways relieved that um there was help to be had and also that you know i could i could say to myself well you're not entirely a failure for being in the situation that you are because you have a diagnosable disorder um and you know you're not alone
0: thanks very much sophie that's that's um That's incredibly um, important, what you've just said, I think. So thank you. Gemma, is there anything you'd like to add at all?
4: Um, Yeah,
2: so I actually had a long period of time when now in hindsight, I, I know that actually my eating disorder had already taken hold, but I wasn't really aware of it at the time. So I had like mental health difficulties from when I was about 14 or 15, but this was like the um, early 1990s, Um, nobody even, uh, I wouldn't have even recognised the word mental health or mental health difficulty. Um, It took a long time. Um, I didn't even go to my GP for a long time. They did. I did eventually get diagnosed with depression and anxiety when I was like in my teens and I, I did like start some treatment like I had I on medication and had some kind of counselling but I was then sort of in contact with mental health services for just for depression and anxieties for like most of my sort of all of my late teens all of my 20s and as far as I kind of understood that that was my main difficulty but I don't think I realised that actually when I was about 17 I actually did start developing an eating disorder but I think I think I was probably so terrified and I I probably developed it as a way of coping with the kind of overwhelming emotions that the depression and the anxiety was giving me that I maybe I was in some kind of I couldn't even see it myself because I was so <laughs> terrified I think it was the only thing I was clinging on to to somehow try to cope because um, I also had other issues like I was self-harming but again there wasn't even a word for that then I mean I'd never heard of it I wouldn't have known it was a thing I just well, I was the only person in the world and I was something very wrong with me so it was actually a long period before I actually had an eating disorder diagnosis and that was almost by chance um, which seems bizarre now when I think that I was sort of having CBT and different counseling, seeing psychiatrists for other mental health issues and it never I do remember now looking back a few people would say hmm uh, do you do you think you might have any problems with food and obviously I think I was genuinely being truthful I said no I don't think so because again I'd got very insular and isolated and I thought how I was 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 fine and that's how everyone was so a couple, there were a couple of tiny occasions, I can think now, when someone might have possibly picked it up or suspected it. But then I just said, no, I don't think so. And they were like, OK. Um, and even my GP, I remember when I finally did, I, I didn't care that my periods had stopped. I thought, does it matter? I'm, not, I'm never having a baby. I don't even want to be alive. Like I, I just didn't care about myself. But when I finally did go, she just said, well, you just need to put on some weight. You're underweight. So if you put on some weight, then you, your periods will come back that was it no no more further so yeah the way that i finally got diagnosed was that i was changing jobs and i had to go through the occupational health department just the standard um thing and i think because i'd indicate that i had mental health issues they said i'll go and see the nurse in person for like an assessment and now I, i think it was the luckiest day ever because this nurse just happened to have seen someone recently who had anorexia nervosa. And this nurse just happened to have a really good awareness. And she almost saw through me, she saw what I didn't even see myself. She she very quite bluntly sort of came out and said, Well, you have an eating disorder. And and I was so shocked and so angry. She was adamant and she was like, I'm not, I'm not gonna watch you die, and I've seen this happen. I was I was really confused and she sort of said to me I'm not um, clearing you for this job unless you ask your mental health team to refer you to the eating disorder service and I remember driving home from that I don't even know how I drove oh I, I couldn't I just couldn't understand it and the only reason I agreed was cause I was so angry that I wanted my I wanted the job that I'd been given and I and I kind of almost thought well if that's if that's what you say then I'll do it and then from then a very very long journey of I did I did ask to be referred I did get referred within a couple of months I was in an inpatient ward um I, I kind of yeah had a period quite a long period of a few years of treatment of that and I um then had a sort of a long period of not having any having any contact with eating disorder services but was still kind of being helped with my like, other mental health stuff and then a few years ago, again, I think I don't even know if you can call it a relapse because it's like I never was sort of well, well, but I think I got a bit worse again. And I this time went to the do- doctor. And again, I was very lucky that this particular doctor said, "Yep, you need to be referred back to some for some help. And I did get referred to the in disorder services where I live now. And again, I had a couple of years of treatment of various types Um Inpatient, outpatient daycare. Um, and that was a couple of years ago. So um yeah, long answer, but unfortunately it was a long process and I felt very differently across the journey. I felt angry, I felt relieved, I felt thankful, I felt like yeah, many things. So a bit of a roller coaster.
0: Goodness, that's amazing, Gemma. Thank you very much for that, and thank you to to Sophie as well. I mean, I just think not only does it seem like an um, extraordinarily um, emotional journey, but also quite random <laughs> in terms of, you know, opportunistic, you know, encounters that you have, which actually change your direction, which is it's quite terrifying in some ways, isn't it? Gosh, thank you for that. Um, so I just wondered, you know, when you had the diagnosis or even before you had your diagnosis, um, how do you think how you felt about yourself your relationship with food life etc how do you think it affected your relationship with friends and family just
3: throwing that open Annie well um, I think like I really actually love the question because and how you've posed it because thinking about what my relationships were like with them before i was actually diagnosed now that i've been diagnosed and you know been in recovery i realized how much how guarded i was um and how it was almost i i'll share this i had um i used to have this vision of me being in a room and it was my my room and there was one door no light it was very dark and i was always in the corner always on my own and it was like I don't know if you know, like, you know, like with jail jail cells, I guess. And this is what I see on TV. (laughs) I've never been to jail. Um, But it's like it's got that one slot. And it was like I felt I had this vision that I would interact with people through that kind of slot. Like life was outside and I was in this space and I lived like that. So in my everyday life, there was just always this barrier. If people got too close, I would do things to just distance myself and I but I didn't see it at the time I just thought of it as just being quite distressing and just you know wanting love but not being able to get it and feeling quite needy but then not wanting to be needy and just really confusing and I was also hyper aware of the things people would say um, about food about my body and that then I would internalize all of it. Um, And even horrible situations, because of how I felt about myself, I almost felt like I deserve that because I need to punish myself. So in a way, like binging was always about hurting me um, because I deserved it. And when I got that diagnosis, it was a bit like what Gemma said, like there was this relief because I started looking back on my life, looking back on my relationships and understanding why i did the things i did because it was a mental thing it wasn't just you know just the the way i was or my personality and then going through recovery a big part of that has been learning how to number one love and value myself so that i can have better relationships with other people Um, and it has been challenging because you know people you know, people get used to how how I was <laughs> or how you are. And then suddenly you become a bit more assertive and you become a bit more open in terms of expressing what you want and what's good for you and what isn't. And that can be sometimes unsettling because they're not used to it. You know, I was diagnosed when I was 37. So for 37 years, they've had this person that has just you say do that and I'm like okay okay whatever you want whatever you need it doesn't matter how I feel and then suddenly I'm like well actually no I don't want that or that isn't good for me or this is a boundary I'm setting because that's not good for me in my life and that can you know I've I've had to my relationships with some people I don't have them anymore I've lost friends and I distance myself from certain people now and you know whereas people would call me any time of the day and Annie would be there. It's not like that anymore. So things have changed.
5: Hi everyone, I'm Charlotte. Uh, I'm a lived experience practitioner for the eating disorder programme for the Healthy London Partnership. Um, Yeah, nice to tune in.
4: Thank you. So Charlotte could you tell us how did you become aware that you had an eating disorder and how did it make you
5: feel hmm. So my sort of eating sort of journey probably began um properly when I was about 17 and I was in high school and essentially my my friends started to to notice Uh, weight loss and withdrawal and over exercising and uh, I was going through a really difficult time at school there was a lot of change and uncertainty and a lot of stuff going on at home as well and so that became my escape and my coping mechanism really for those difficulties because I didn't feel like I had anyone to talk to about it and I wasn't really conscious of what I was actually doing it just felt like oh this will make things better uh this is this will help and and so actually it took me quite a long time um of other people around me nudging me and saying like you this isn't okay what are you doing like you need to eat you need to stop exercising or um yeah it it took at least a year maybe two years even of me Living in my eating disorder and using behaviours before um, I came back from some travels in India and had uh, was not very well at all physically uh, and also mentally I was struggling uh, with things. So my parents and particularly my dad uh, kind of printed off a list of symptoms of uh, anorexia and just said, "Please use your logical mind," as if you were. Uh, speaking to a friend and and ask them these questions and answer them honestly as if you were someone else. Uh, and so I did, and they they all rang true. And in the back of my heart and mind, I kind of knew that you know my periods had stopped, that that wasn't just a coincidence, that there was definitely a reason for that. Um, and other family members had had been pointing out concern as well. And eventually that persuaded me to go to the GP. I was still quite in denial um, and just sort of going to appease my parents, really. And and um, yeah, and then spoke with the GP and, and got kind of uh, more of their support. And, and then it was referred to leading sort of specialist team. But I, I sort of went to uni for the first year and it took me from sort of October to the April the next year to get to be seen properly by the team and then get a full diagnosis and I think it was only when I got the diagnosis that I was kind of like ah right yeah it it is true you've been assessed now properly by a psychiatrist um it's it's for real (laughs) uh and I guess that's yeah that it, it took me a long time, maybe you know, two three years between getting very, you know, starting to use even sort of behaviours, to then actually admitting to myself, right, I have a problem, and I, I need to start. I want to start getting better. Uh, and then again, that process from accepting that I had a a, um, a problem and that it was affecting my life and was mal- a maladaptive coping mechanism, it took me then quite at least a year or two of still being in my behaviours and living quite a, a challenging life with it, to to fully commit to treatment and be like, actually no, I, I really I can't I can't do this anymore. I, I can't continue in this way with myself. Um so yeah, it was a a long journey really of um of owning up to myself and accepting and coming to terms with it and wanting to actually get help. So yeah. Thank
4: you. And um, how did it affect your relationships with friends and family?
5: Mm. I think over the years it's 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 really sad in a way that it has significantly affected friendships, romantic relationships and uh, relationships with my family because what it does is it, it it's like a protective shield. So although on some level it it keeps you safe enough to continue with life, perhaps quite a restricted life. Um, it pushes everyone else away. It's 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 very much a, a protective barrier from the world, uh, both positive and negative. So it stops you feeling perhaps pain and uh, helps numb those more challenging experiences, but it, it also numbs out all the good stuff. Um, so towards the end of high school, uh I basically closed off from my friends and yeah reflecting back now you know 15 years later it's it, it's it is sad it's kind of yeah I, I missed out on some really fun times uh and and good friendships because it can be quite difficult watching a friend go through such an experience and you know if you've really tried your best then you still can't help them then at some point you may they may need to let you go because it's just too painful to be around you um, because of one's self-destructive uh, patterns in nature. So yeah, at high school, I, I sort of lost a lot of friends through the experience. Um, and yeah, through university, it was difficult to make friends. Um, yeah, my behaviours were quite controlling, always going to the gym, um, very much st- f- focused on studies really, and food uh, and exercise and, and controlling things. So. Um, Yeah, I still managed to have quite a good time at at university, but I'm sure it would have been a hell of a lot better without without an eating disorder. Um, Yeah, and with family, again, it it pushed them away and also made them extremely concerned because uh, eating disorders do have a high mortality risk with them, so not only is your uh, family member emotionally and personality-wise disappeared, they also are at risk of, uh, of not being here anymore as a result um, of, of what they're doing to themselves. So, yeah. Uh, and similarly with romantic partnerships, um, I was very controlling and very afraid of committing to relationships and, so, uh, and letting someone in to really see me uh, and be willing to uh, trust someone that whatever happened to my body, they would still love me. Because on some level, I couldn't do that. So how if you can't do it for yourself, it's very difficult to allow someone else to to do that for you. Um, well, to, to love you unconditionally, even though they most definitely probably would. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, it, it cut a lot of romantic relationships short because I'd run away um, at the, the prospect of being confronted with love um, and deserving it. So, um, yeah, and... I guess it's also significantly affected my relationship with myself. It's all about self-love and self-acceptance, and uh, been a long journey to come to a place of peace and acceptance and joy towards myself um, as part of that healing process. Um, so yeah.
4: Thank you, Charlotte. And. Um... How do you remember it influencing your interaction with healthcare professionals at all stages of your illness and recovery? It could be both good and bad examples.
5: Hmm. It's an interesting question. I think along the way, there's been some fantastic interactions, but also some that were in the back of my mind a bit confusing or. Uh, not necessarily trusting them or their 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 intuition about the situation uh, I can start with the first time I went to a GP with uh, loss of menstruation they actually asked me they were running through the potential causes and they were like well you know the last resort is that you could have an eating disorder but you don't have that do you And I was like, no, not not at all. (laughs) That can't possibly be the the problem. Uh, So in the back of my mind, knowing "Mm, that could be Uh, not at all. (laughs) That can't possibly be the the problem. Uh, So in the back of my mind, knowing "Mm, that could be. Um, So that 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 first interaction was was, I guess, a little bit unhelpful and perhaps um, a lack of training or a lack of insight and understanding from the GP's perspective or point of view. So, yeah. And then after that, I got referred to an endocrinologist to check if I had a brain tumor for a pituitary tumor, which would affect your menstrual cycle as well. And again, he wasn't very aware and insightful. And I had an MRI scan of my brain. And I remember thinking, I know this is a waste of a scan. You know, I'm pretty sure I don't have a brain tumor. I think it's because I'm not eating and exercising, but I'll just sort of go along with it um so yeah it, it is I think at various points I've had misdiagnoses or, or or not been diagnosed early enough or could have been diagnosed earlier because there were doctors along the way that weren't kind of seen right through um the veil of deception um to the to core of the issue um, but I guess also doing their job in finding out if it was anything else. Uh, so, yeah. Once I got referred to the eating disorder team, I did find that their their care was was wonderful. Um, I saw a very good dietitian for about a year, who very much helped me um, with food and my relationship with it. And and then I went into a day patient program for six months, and again they were extremely diligent and very caring and really understood all the layers of an eating disorder um yeah and wanting very much to support you through that process uh, and the need to sort of let go of everything in that um and then again when I was in treatment for a second time uh staff were amazing um and yeah really supportive and so those are sort of the two extremes. (laughs) Great awareness to complete lack of awareness, Um, uh, yeah.
4: Thank you very much. I think, uh, you know, these are the points that probably have been raised, you know, within the other podcasts as well. Yes, it's quite interesting. and from your experience, what tips or advice would you give to those working in the healthcare profession in terms of how they may best support those with eating disorders and their carers throughout their illness and recovery?
5: Mm, yeah, I think, I guess there's two, two uh, camps of healthcare professionals related to eating disorder interaction and that will be the specialist and those who are working in the field and then those who are working outside of the field uh, say for example as a GP or any other speciality really for physical health or um, a psychiatrist in a specific um, area of expertise. So I think those who are outside of the area and are unfamiliar with it I think they could be better informed and have uh, more of awareness of yeah, w- uh, what it's like to go through an eating disorder, how to diagnose and identify someone with it, especially during the sort of deception and denial phase uh, and all the physical health symptoms that might arise out of that, such as cardiology, endocrinology um, and other mental health problems. Uh, yeah, and I think in terms of perhaps therapists being very aware of uh, of of that as well as a as a potential, uh, and then those who are in the 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 sector of treating eating disorders, there's still quite a little bit of. Um, you know, depending on an inpatient ward, sometimes the nurses aren't specifically trained, and they're just brought in to kind of uh, manage as in uh, staffing numbers, and that can make treatment quite difficult if they don't really know how to talk to someone with an eating disorder or how to support them through the process. Um, and then those that are a bit more experienced, I guess, is continuing to do everything they're already doing. <laughs> um, and particularly involving um, a, a sort of a holistic approach to treatment, that it's not just about the food. Uh, it's also about therapy, both you know CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy, and psychotherapy going into one's past. Also, particularly family family therapy. A lot of uh, the roots of an eating disorder lie in childhood, and perhaps the need to be a perfectionist or a... Um, not having other tools to deal with emotions. Um, and so a lot of those patterns are held in the family, as well as a difficulty in communicating with one another. Uh, so, yeah, family therapy not only supports the, the sufferer through treatment, it already also helps with the family dynamic and uh, everything going on in, in the background to help kind of support the family members going through the process as well. So, yeah, those
4: are the main points, I think. Thank you, Charlotte,
2: for sharing. I think that for me, it impacted on my relationships more in the sense that because I have sort of had such low self-esteem and thought so little of myself and often thought there was something sort of very wrong with me or that I somehow you know like not really understanding why anyone else would want to be around me and finding it hard almost finding it harder to accept having friends or that someone might like me because I just I couldn't really understand well I still can't to be honest I still struggle with that understanding why people would like me um so I did a lot of kind of isolating myself a lot like when I was younger in my sort of Teens and 20s, I, I had friends, but I, I think also the, the, t- the illness did stop me from doing things socially because I was terrified of going anywhere. Um, I had a lot of anxiety issues as well. I was scared of anything that involved food, which is most social occasions, to be honest. Um, I don't feel like I did as much as I kind of maybe would have liked to as a young person. Um, I went to university, but I only did it by just staying living at home. So I really wanted to do it, and I really wanted to study, but I was terrified of how I would manage living away. So I kind of I did things, but in a really I think my sort of really limited how I did them. I missed out on lots of things, and I withdrew from lots of things, and tried to make things as kind of safe and controlled as I could. And this is all in the years prior to even being diagnosed. But I was obviously very aware that it was affecting whatever it was that was wrong with me was affecting things, and I. I actually, my relationship with my parents, because I was sort of really dependent on them, but at the same time, I think I was really controlling of them. Because, again, I didn't realise until looking back, but even things like cooing like family meals, I know often people with eating disorders might just sort of withdraw from that altogether and maybe eat separately. But somehow I I imposed my kind of issues onto my parents so that We'd still cook as a family, but i I dictated everything as to what we could have, what we couldn't have, what we were putting in. um and unfortunately, my parents did their very best, and they thought the best they could do was sort of go along with me because otherwise they were terrified that if they sort of said no, then I'd eat nothing at all or they sort of their method was to kind of try and like almost appease the the illness um so. I was, I think, in some ways that also helped me to not really realise what was wrong with me because nobody was challenging me. I think if someone had said, "What, what on earth are you doing there?" Just like that's not okay, um, and not at all. Again, that's not to blame. Like there's no blame at all here. Um, but then, in terms of other relationships, I didn't even leave home till I just I met my partner, and he lived a long way away. And somehow, eventually, that was enough to kind of push me to have the courage to to leave home and live with him um and i was fairly well at the time but in the sort of next few years i got more unwell and then that was a different kind of difficult relationship because i think with your parents even if you're an adult child there's always an element of it's okay that they're caring for you because in a way that's what they've kind of done since you were a child as difficult as it can be but i really didn't want my partner to be my carer i really resented that i didn't want that for him it wasn't how it was supposed to be I didn't want him to feel that he had to do that and it has put a lot of strain on it I think especially when I went into hospital he was very scared um because I was very scared he didn't like leaving me there it was really quite horrible and it had a big impact on his mental health and he's had to have a sort of a crash course in learning about mental health and eating disorders and it still is a bit of a source of tension between us and it does still affect things I'd love to do more things like that other people do going out for dinner and things and I still really struggle with that so it does have a huge impact um on relationships um yeah it it makes me feel really sad because I know there's more I'd like to do but um still find it hard to
0: thanks Gemma that's I mean because you said some really important things there I just wondered um if you just looking back now you mentioned about your relationship with your parents and how they were clearly wanting to do the best for you if you had any advice to give or if you were thinking back about you know if you could change the way things were what what would that be do you think just given where you are now i think now maybe because of everything that's happened and what i've learned i
2: i would like to say that i wish they could have actually challenged me but knowing how I was then I was extremely kind of volatile like I wasn't I, I was very quiet and mostly you know very sort of compliant and well behaved but if somebody had confronted me about my eating habits or my weight or anything like that I think I would have been absolutely furious because I was so in denial I probably would have thrown it right back at them so even though maybe there was a middle my you know, maybe they could have been, a, I don't know if it's possible to be gently challenging or challenging in a supportive way to maybe kind of explore and say, look, I, you know, you seem to be upset. I, I wondered, is there anything, you know, that, that, that kind of line of questioning? I'm, I'm sure direct sort of, if my mum had said, right, what's uh, you know, that wouldn't have helped, but equally it didn't help by it almost being sort of, sort of non-spoken. And I and I have spoken to them since. And my mum has told me that she used to wait to see if she heard my footsteps upstairs every morning because she thought I was going to die in my sleep. And obviously that's d- devastating and no parents should have to do that. And I feel so guilty. But unfortunately, she didn't tell me that at the time. And, and again, I don't know what would have happened if she had. Maybe it would have woken me up. I don't know. So it's really tricky and I think it's also tricky because I was a, an adult child so obviously I know the situation is very different for parents of children with eating disorders as I was sort of you know in my 20s and 30s and that's kind of even more tricky no easy answer I guess is the is the answer.
0: Oh, thanks Gemma that's
3: that's that's great Annie. Um, yeah I, I just also wanted to add that you know i think sometimes you can think that and you know, some i guess some of the things we're kind of describing that you like for me as much as i sort of lived quite feeling quite alone and having these barriers that on the outside it doesn't always look like that so i was a very sociable person and i would you know especially in my mid-20s I had a lot of friends and I would go out every Saturday and I would go you know groups of us would travel around the world and on the outside it can look like you know you're living your best life but what a lot of people don't see is everything that's going on inside um, in order to even be able to do that you know when I would go on holiday with my friends it was the stress i would be under thinking about what clothes am i going to wear what do i look like on the beach you know and all my constantly comparing my body to everyone around me um and i remember one one of my friends his grand saw some photos of us and he said oh that's your fat friend and you know as a as a group it was like oh you laugh it off but that was one of like i still remember it because it hurt so much um and so it's it's things like that that I I would just wanted to raise the point that, you know, if you're someone who doesn't, you know, you, you, I guess if you're looking from the outside in, it's not, it's like there's not a look is what I'm saying. It's like someone can be completely out there, really sociable and you just don't know what's really going on inside of them in order to get to the point where they can be that sociable person um, or constantly going home and overanalyzing conversation and everything you said and everything you did and what you were wearing and whether that person thought this about what you look like and so there's a lot that goes on kind of in the in the background um so it doesn't actually have a face oh that person's quiet so they might have an eating disorder or that one's sociable that they're they're okay um it doesn't have a face and i think that's that's the kind of point i just wanted to sort of raise
0: Thanks very much, Annie. I mean, just again, just looking back yourself, is there anything Is there anything you can think of where you are now that you think might have helped you in terms of what your friends and family may have done? Do you think they could have picked up on what was going on? Is there anything that you think that they could have done which may have been a positive
3: um, help or influence to you at that time? Well, the thing is, I think at that time, especially I think it was especially when I got into my 20s, I recognised that I just I didn't like the way I looked. I didn't like my body. Now, obviously, I'm a lot I'm bigger than I was back then. And you look back on those pictures and you're like, oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> like, I wish I was that size now. But at the time, people did say, there's nothing wrong with you. You're beautiful. You've got a great body. But it was like, I recognised that, Okay, I know you're saying that, but I don't believe it about me. Um, And I don't, and binging disorder wasn't, you know, I never heard of it. So all I felt when, in terms of binging, was just shame. So I would never speak to anybody about it. Um, And everything was done in the context of just weight loss. So, I think even like now, I'm very, um, I guess I'm a bit more vocal about perhaps diet culture and what people say um, around eating. And, you know, and that's probably perhaps in my family, maybe if there wasn't that sort of lifestyle of constantly being on a diet generally, um, then maybe that would have changed perhaps how I viewed um, eating and food Um, whereas in a way it was kind of encouraged because that's what everybody does like that's what you do when you need to lose weight Um, rather than even thinking that it might be a eating disorder so I guess my answer is I don't I can't really look back and say well if someone did this then you know would have made a difference and actually I did have a friend I think I was I'm in my sort of mid to late 20s and a friend came round, we were having dinner and he actually said to me, Annie, what's going on with you? And it was like, I remember that thing of someone's actually seeing that I'm not okay. But then it, I realized it was more about the weight I gained more than this stuff going on behind it. Do you see what I mean? Um, there's, I can't think of anything that someone could have done or said that would have changed how i felt about myself i think i just needed to learn how to deal with some of the things that were going on in my life and i didn't feel that i had that support or ability to manage
0: okay that's 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 really helpful thank you for that um so we've heard a bit about you know your journey i suppose up to the point all of you your point of sort of diagnosis um I'm just particularly interested and I guess I'm speaking from my own sort of personal professional experience. I'm I'm just interested to to hear from you guys um, what memories you have about interactions once you had your diagnosis um, with um, healthcare care professionals or carers and families, friends, whatever. But um, I just wondered if you wanted to um, share any experiences that you had, either good or bad um, with healthcare professionals along the way, either as outpatients or in general practice or in acute hospitals or eating disorder units. Um just so that we I just really be interested to 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 hear what's like from your perspective. And I don't know if that's an old hand or a new hand actually should probably Is that a new hand? Yeah,
3: it's yeah I I mean I, I it's a new hand. <laughs> um but yeah I'm I've had very good and what I would say is very bad experiences. Um, my like my treatment was all out, outpatient anyway. Um, but I think my GP, the first GP I saw, was brilliant because she just asked me very genuine questions that gave me the space to speak um, and was quite compassionate and understanding, and that really helped me to first of all just open up to her. Um, and then obviously with some referrals, it was the same sort of thing. I had the same kind of just really kind people who would speak to me. Uh, We've been having a conversation about uh, personal responsibility
1: and uh, which I, I guess another word for that is, is blame. <laughs> Uh, and talking about how you know there is a certain element of, of personal responsibility in, in in terms of where I've you know I am, where I've got to. Nobody force fed me. Um, but you know, she said to me that um, that the world that I live in isn't a choice, but choosing to recover is, and that was extremely powerful to to um, to hear from her. That I've made this decision to reach out for help and to go through the through the process, um, and I continue to make the decision to recover. Um, and I think that that it was it was just really empowering. Um, that word is sometimes overused, but it really made me feel like I can be I can be in control of my recovery and my future in a way that I hadn't really uh, felt before.
0: Thank you so much, Sophie. And I think you know having having met your dietitian um on a podcast earlier, I can completely see what an amazing health professional she is and uh, we're very lucky to have her <laughs> um, to hey her. Um, be available to um, people such as yourself and it just makes a massive difference, doesn't it? So thank you very much for sharing that Gemma. um
2: thanks penny yeah i I've had quite a few different interactions with with healthcare professionals over the years but most of them are within eating disorder services so um I was I was just trying to pick out like a few like maybe themes or experiences um some of it sort of goes back quite a while ago um so it I think the main thing I could say is how varied it's been like from for example i mentioned sort of very early experiences of seeing a GP as a sort of a young adult and it, you know, not being picked up or it being dismissed or, you know, oh, you just need to gain some weight and sort of throw away comments like that. But then equally, I've had like my more recent experiences. Like I said, I was very lucky that I did go to a GP who happened to sort of have pretty good awareness and Maybe it was it helped that I'd already had a diagnosis and some previous treatment. Maybe that helped with the recognition from her because it wasn't like working from I actually came and said, I think I'm really struggling with this again. So I guess that made it a lot of a like more of a smooth process for her to say, yes, I think you are and you need to be referred. So I think that that obviously made a difference. Um, generally within eating disorder services i i would say my experience of the staff has been like has been very positive some some have been amazing and have made a real impact on me others not so good and unfortunately like like sophie said you do tend to remember the the ones that weren't so good um it's, it's a sort of speak in broad terms i'd say that like the best sort of interactions i've had is where i felt like i've been treated as a kind of a a person or an individual not you know someone with this diagnosis or because I have had language like that unfortunately even within eating disorder treatment that some of the programs we did quite a lot of sort of group work in daycare programs and you'd often hear staff say you know people with eating disorders tend to all think like this or people with and you think oh no like even you're kind of generalizing and I'm not a person with any like um but on the other hand they would also be encouraging us to you know don't be defined by your in disorder this is about building your life back again and there's outside this, don't make it your identity so I, I sometimes felt it was confusing um and I think I felt most sort of understood when people just I felt like they were just talking to me and maybe just trying to listen to me or understand me rather than me as a person who was in this treatment or because I think um the worst kind of interactions would be either where I sort of felt like um I felt like my I do actually feel like sometimes being in the treatment was erasing my identity because I felt like I was just in a system where for whatever reason, you all have to kind of follow roughly the same rules and you all have to be sort of treated down a certain pathway. And as much as even the sort of the best win in the world, there's only a certain amount of individualization that can be done in, in care because of resources and, you know, how services are set up. So I felt like there were, because I moved between several services, I think it, it did it did make me feel a bit more confused about what what i needed or what was wrong with me or what people thought i needed because i i kind of started off on this this treatment kind of episode in in a daycare service like a full-time like five days a week kind of thing but then it because i got more unwell actually more like mentally unwell i i wasn't progressing either i i had was not able to follow all the meal plan outside of the program and i wasn't doing so well that way but i think the reason why they they kind of said I needed something more intensive was more because of fears of my kind of mental like deterioration. I was getting more kind of depressed and suicidal. And and I kind of said, OK, and went with it and went into an inpatient. But then I felt like when I was there, wasn't really ill, like I wasn't ill enough. I then got the impression staff sort of treated me as if mm, maybe I'm not as as sick as the other people in certain ways and there's a whole thing of like trying to compare yourself and then thinking why am I here and um I think that was the most like impersonal kind of interactions I've had
0: did. I think it's kind of uh, some people with eating disorders would recognize that when they're in that really fearful state and that often when they're very very underweight as well um that sometimes they will do things just because of the fear of the eating the fear of 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 Putting food inside, all those sort of things that 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 people will do things to, I don't know, hide food or you know sort of purge all of those sort of things. Do you? This is a really hard question to ask you. and I'm sure not really anticipating an answer, but I just wondered if you had any kind of insight or thought about what could you say or what would you advise healthcare professionals who kind of obviously, you know, they may not have known you very well. They, you know, how how do you think they could have approached things? differently so that that trust was not eroded um, but they gave the appropriate approach I suppose.
2: Yeah it is really difficult because I try to see it from different viewpoints and I kind of understand like especially within something like an inpatient setting there are just rules and they're for everyone regardless of what your particular behaviours might be or if, like for example I, I have never had a problem with purging but I know obviously lots of people do so the rule on the ward is all the toilets are locked all the time and if you need to use the toilet you've got to ask someone and they might watch you or they might not and I kind of just could not I was just like but I but I don't I, I don't need that sort of safety or that protection I don't have that but from their point of view well why would they believe? Why should they? Like, they don't know me. And I, I I, might have come from a different part of the service, but they wouldn't have, like, read all of my notes and, you know, oh, yeah, we guarantee this person won't have an issue with this, because even if I hadn't had an issue with it, maybe I'd develop one when I was there. So part of me felt really like this is really unfair and why am like you know. And But trying to look at it from their point of view, I'm thinking how would they know? How could they possibly do one thing for me or you know let one person go out on a walk for 10 minutes but not the other person because they might you know like it's a lot easier unfortunately in a sort of practical way to just say nobody's allowed to do this all the doors are locked this is this so that's tricky I think in an ideal world it would be lovely if staff had time to get to know people and to be able to talk to them and to like maybe judge you know if people are Finding it difficult to comply with certain things, you know, and maybe that would create more of an atmosphere where there was more trust and maybe people would feel more able to say if they were struggling with something. Um, but that, I guess we're not in an ideal world and we know, you know, staff are often very pressed for time and resources are short. But I suppose anybody could try to keep it in mind that everyone's an individual And not everyone with one type of diagnosis will behave in a certain way. Um, And I suppose if you just hold that in mind, that might open up more conversations or more room for people to feel that they can talk
0: honestly, I think. Okay. Oh, goodness. Do you know what? This has been such a fantastic discussion. I'm hugely grateful to you all. You're absolutely amazing women. Um I'm aware that of the time although I would very gladly sit here for another hour and a half because it's been massively educational for me as well I fear we probably do need to wind up at this point you've all made some really important points I think in terms of your experiences but also possibly you know I, I think talked a little bit about the positive things and things which can have the potential to help you but I wonder if we could just finish off by just asking I'm just I'm just throwing this open just Just from all of your experiences, are there any other tips or advice that you would, you know, you'd give to those working in the healthcare profession in terms of how they could best support people with eating disorders and the carers throughout their illness and their recovery, just as a sort of a final thing before we sign off? Sophie.
1: Yeah, I think this comes back to a bit of what I was saying in another podcast. It's about looking at the whole person, and I think if people had looked at Gemma as the whole person, in her example, um, there could have been, you know, a, an easier outcome. Um, and with 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 binge eating disorder, certainly, um, people for healthcare professionals not working in within eating disorder um, look at what's actually happening with the person who's presenting to you, because yeah, they may have a problem that's related to their diet but is that is there some binge eating happening under there? Is is there some strict dieting um look at the whole picture
0: thanks a lot for that Sophie Gemma
2: yeah I think I think sort of echoing Sophie um definitely about just sort of like flexibility and a bit of looking at in the individual, and, and maybe there's some deep issues around like systems, I think maybe some of the treatment pathways, it can be quite rigid, like if you, you know, if you, if you're aiming to um, make a full recovery, um, and, and sort of, you know, achieve a healthy weight, you have, you must go down this route, and it's this programme, and it's this many weeks, and there are these targets and these boundaries, and if you don't do them, this happens, and there are consequences, Um that's sort of my experience of, of of some treatment has is been very kind of rigid pathways and that can be quite hard if you don't quite feel like you may be in one or the other or you definitely do fit in it but maybe you're not achieving it as quickly as you hope to or so I think um also that sort of systems as well as individual staff being a bit more sort of open to, to seeing people as individuals also maybe realizing that not all pathways it's like a one size fits all it can be really tricky and sometimes you might need if there's any way of sort of having a little bit of help from one service and maybe a little bit from another or maybe um it not being so so sort of you must be in or out because I think I've found that hard so you'd get discharged and then I I would love to have a little bit of ongoing even something quite small but but that doesn't really exist you either you referred or, or or you're out again so any kind of sort of flexibility, whether that's of sort of attitudes or services um, would be really helpful.
0: Thank you very much for that, Gemma. That's great. Annie.
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I think like I do just echo what both Gemma and Sophie have said as well about being treated as an individual. Um, But I also wanted to add that I think. Um, <sighs> My mind's gone completely blank. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Oh my goodness, you know when that happens. Um, Okay, I'm just going to leave it there. I echo what Sophie and Gemma actually said. um, And just, yeah, I just think that people need to see individuals when they're coming to you. Um, Oh, that was it. It came back. Thank you. Um, What I was going to say is that I think when you go to a GP or, you know, when you take the healthcare professionals generically, not everybody is necessarily understanding of mental health. Um, And so, you know, in my example, I gave with that GP, it's having the understanding that this isn't just a formality in terms of I need this letter or something. But actually, there's someone on the other end of that line who's, challenged mentally um, and understanding that my thoughts may not be as formulaic as what he's working with Um, and so i think an understanding generally that an eating disorder number one isn't just about food that there's a lot that goes on it can be linked very much with low self-esteem which means you can be triggered by some of the things that people say um, And just having that kind of understanding, I think, is really important when you're dealing with people who have eating disorders. Um, And I mean, generally anyway, but we're talking about this specifically. So, yeah, that was what I was going to add. Thank you. Thanks very much,
0: Annie. That's great. So Gemma, Sophie, Annie, we've um, had an amazing discussion. You're You're all amazing women and I feel really privileged to have been part of it. Um, I think this has been a truly um, incredibly valuable discussion and I hope that we can um, take it out to lots of people because I think a lot of people will really benefit from your insights and your experience. So thank you very much once again for having the courage to take part. We all really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.
4: I'll stop. Thank you.
0: Brilliant. okay. Thanks so much that Gemma. And thanks for asking that question as well, Sophie. Um
4: It is.